You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 24th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Live from Studio One in London, this is Midori House. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up today, what if all the news were fake news? They glitch. They're recycling a green screen behind him. When he turns, his nose disappears repeatedly because the green screen isn't set right. Could Alex Jones' economy of tinfoil hat conspiracy peddling finally land him in court? I'll ask my guests, Mary Dijewski and Somnath Batabial, also ahead. Many of you, it turns out, are blocked by Trump on Twitter. But all that's over. Because this afternoon, a federal judge ruled that Trump can't block people on Twitter. So, yeah. Yes. A good day for democracy online, a bad day for the health of Twitter feeds everywhere. Plus, Russia questions the reappearance of Yulia Skripal and our tips on how to navigate a tense meeting. That's all ahead on Midori House, starting right now. A warm welcome indeed to the programme. My guests today are Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and Somnath Batabial, lecturer in media and development and international journalism at SOAS. A warm welcome to you both. Let's start in the United States. Mass shootings have become part of a tragic, seemingly endless dialogue. Many such incidents fail to gain much traction in the media. Such is their commonality. But there was something different about the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School. The victims were mostly first graders, aged around five or six. In total, 20 children died, along with six adults. That was more than five years ago. But the families of those who lost their lives still endure daily threats and harassment online from people who believe a series of bizarre conspiracy theories spread by Alex Jones, the main thread of which relies on a belief that the victims' families are actors involved in a plot to ban guns. Now, three separate lawsuits are challenging Jones in court, seeking damages for defamation. Neil Heslin lost his six-year-old son, Jesse, at Sandy Hook. He's involved with one of the lawsuits, and he told NBC's Megan Kelly why he decided to take action. Well, it's accountability and responsibility. It's gone on for four and a half, five years. Uh, the lies, uh, the trauma that he imposes, the pain and suffering with, uh, with the lies he peddles. And, you know, to say that Sandy Hook was a hoax and it never happened, it's an outright lie. It's a, it's a total disrespect to myself, my son, the individuals who lost their lives that day, but it extends so much further than that. It ex it's a disrespect to the community and the law enforcement, the first responders. It just, it's not right. And, and he needs to, it needs to stop. That was Neil Heslin there. As ever, so much more erudite than the person on the other end of this equation. Um, so, Nath Batterfield, maybe I'll come to you first of all. Even if Alex Jones is knowingly spreading lies, he could and would, one assumes, argue that he's protected by his freedom of speech. Uh, you have a, some mastery of those issues. Does he have any sort of argument along those lines? Well, it's, in court, it'll be a difficult case... I mean, there'll be a protracted battle, you know, and as you clearly say that he will say he's protecting his First Amendment to speak and he shouldn't be um, scuttled in, in that attempt. But there's a lar larger issue at hand, which is, um, you know, and which has really come up in America and now the rest of the world, which is about alternative facts, 
post-truth these conversations have started, especially since the American president, uh, the most powerful person in the world, believes in alternative facts. But if we see it in a slightly larger philosophical uh, moment, uh, Michel Foucault, um, last century, is one of the greatest sociologists, talks about the regimes of truth. You know, so in that kind of philosophical sense, there is no truth as such, but competing truths. And where you speak from, the positions of power, uh, where, uh, the spaces you argue, and the moments where these arguments are made become very important. So this is, it has been taken to its absurd uh, conclusion in this kind of social media, post-truth, Trump era. But you see this, politically, this conversations of competing truths have always been around. Well, and Mary, that's a fascinating point, isn't it? Because we've talked often about, you know, looking back at, say, Soviet era history, the mastery of propaganda, a number of states today still playing that game. This has always been there, but there's something about, you know, to hear for, from Neil Heslin there, this case, I think, understandably brings even that long history into a particularly sharp focus. No, I agree. I mean, I find this case completely extraordinary. I mean, it just seems that there are cases, I mean, and more and more of them, where there are different versions and different ways of looking at the same facts. Um, and we see that all the time. We see it between Russia and America, Russia and the UK. We see it between China and other people, that you have different versions of things. But this seems to me such an open and shut case that what you have here was a school shooting where more than 20 people, small children, died. And you've got grieving families and you're talking more than five years on and somebody's saying, well, no, this didn't really happen. It couldn't possibly have happened like that. The whole thing is a put-up job um, for the anti-gun lobby in the United States. Now, you know, first of all, that is, uh, of course, a very American thing. Um, but it also seems so utterly callous that mm. even more so, in a way, than all the conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11, that there it's a collective thing. Um, whereas this is so very personalised that I think you, you have to, in some ways, to sort of stand back with a degree of admiration for the people who are going to court. Um, but, you know, as, uh, as has just been said, these things are very difficult to prove in court because mm. essentially you have to pr you almost have to prove a negative um, and you just sort of hope that you've got a, a, a judge who errs on the side of common sense rather than maybe you know legal small print and they and they don't always um, that is interesting isn't it Sonath and I guess you know it's interesting I, I don't know how often we've had sort of F Foucauldian logic cited here <laughs> on Midori House it could have been a first uh, but to pick up on again I guess a broader philosophical almost question is there a risk if the case proves simply too difficult to fall the way that perhaps we feel it should um, there's a risk there that you do get this uh, I guess divergence between freedom of speech and, a, and freedom of from any consequence or, or or the lack of would that be a worry if this if the case isn't settled if indeed it goes to court and isn't settled in the in the name of uh, common sense as mary hopes i mean that has always been the case in america and with the problems of the, you know what the founding fathers laid out the gun lobby is one of the most brilliant examples of how bizarre and illogical things can get as Mary just said, it's an extremely callous state which allows 
day in, day out for children to die. You know, as parents, even to think that you're sending your child, the child might not come back. That horrific thought. I, I mean, it appalls all kind of human decency. But given, as you said, this competing idea of freedom to say whatever I want and basic human values, this is always in conflict in the, the in the American courts. I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of any country which would act this bizarrely and find a public space to talk about this. You know, this just seems bizarre. Uh, but I guess with the current incumbent in the Oval Office, we'll come back to him as well. Maybe not quite so surprising. <laughs> it is interesting, I suppose, if we look at the sort of legalities here, though, as well, Mary. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't a, a criminal case, uh, and there's, they're not seeking for Jones to be prosecuted for spreading these falsehoods. But indeed, he could be at fault in terms of reputational uh, damage if he's found to be deliberately smearing the reputations of these people. And we know America, of course, famously uh, litigious. Presumably, that wouldn't take such a, a, a leap of bravery by the, 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 the judicial officials involved. No, here. I mean, I think you're right. I think that the the, um, the reputational issue um, that um, they're taking Alex Jones to court basically for smearing them in a way, um, for casting doubt on their reputation and their veracity, um, that, 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 that may be the strongest way to go. And also because when you compare um, US law with English law, specifically on things like libel and reputation, then actually American law is in some ways easier to use than um, than English law. So I sort of think that that's the best way to go. But the then the question is, you know, if if, if damages are going to be awarded, you sort of, you, you can envisage a scenario where the judge says, well, you know, on the one hand, he's got the right to say what he wants. On the other hand, other people have been harmed and order some sort of pathetic little token um, damages. Um, whereas, you know, you would look at this or I would look at this in the cold, hard light of day and say that there should be enormous damages, mm. um, that the reputation and the, the the sort of social standing of, a, 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 of the parents and the people who are going to court is worth an awful lot. And it may be that in the American sort of canon of values, that isn't actually so. Um, but, you know, I, I would sit here and say the guy should be bankrupted. And that's where it should, you know, that that's where, as it were, that the, the, the hurt should fall. It should mm. be in the pocket and it should be over reputation. Indeed. Well, and just briefly before we move on, Sonata, on, on Alex Jones, I guess his sort of InfoWars website, it's viewed by the tens of millions. Uh, another easy question for you. Why Why is, th- why is that? Is, it, is he tapping into this same sense of people who feel disconnected from those that nominally represent them and this sort of thing. How does stuff that is so plainly lunatic get such traction? Look, I I ask the same question every day when I travel in the underground and see people reading the tabloids. Uh, So, you know, people like bizarre things and and alternative facts, so they do. Um, And of course, I'm not saying that the British tabloids are as bad as in four wars. Uh, but, I mean, they ha- listen, they have their <laughs> moments. There's, 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 there's degrees of this, of course. Yeah. But, it, but it, I guess it, it does pick up the same thing, which that we see even growing audiences for yeah. this kind of material. It's hard to explain. Bizarre things have their traction. Uh, but that's the only way I can, I can 
answer this. I, I can't talk about a larger sociological Foucauldian idea of why the masses move that way. But well, talk- I'd, I'd like to venture one thing yeah, in, go, go in ahead, respect Mindy. of go that, ahead, because, I, because I do think that um, not just because of social media, um, but because of the way governments have behaved in taking public opinion, but, you know, informed public opinion in taking it for granted and going against it. And I think if you take the UK specifically, then I think the Iraq war, the legacy of the Iraq war in the UK has been a colossal amount of mistrust on the part of the public towards people in power. And I think in the case of the Iraq war, that is justified. And the problem is it gets replicated across all sorts of things where it's less justified. Uh, well, let's expand upon something that involves, again, a sort of you know mass communication and indeed the sort of bizarreness that, that Somnassi was talking about, uh, Twitter. Is it a public forum or a private platform? That was the question mulled over by a federal judge in Manhattan this week following a lawsuit lodged by seven people who'd been blocked by the president. Uh, another of those who's been blocked is the author Stephen King. Yes, him. Though he's not involved in the lawsuit. Here's some of what he had to say to Stephen Colbert on The Late Show this week. When did he block you? He blocked me about eight or nine months ago. It's been a long time. It's hard to What did you do, Stephen King? What did you do to that good man that hurt his feelings so much that he felt the only way to defend himself was through your harsh and hurtful words? Was to block you on Twitter? I might have said he had his head somewhere where a, a certain yoga position would be necessary to get it there. And that was it, man. Uh, That was Stephen King speaking on The Late Show yesterday. The judge found that Twitter is indeed a public forum and consequently when Trump or an aide blocks others from viewing and replying to posts, that violates the First Amendment. We're here again. Uh, (laughs) What do you make of this one? Uh, Well, again, it's uh, it's the battle the activists have been having about private space and the public sphere. Uh, And, you know, if I or you perhaps block somebody who is personally abusive... It can. It would probably be our personal right to say, you know, but the way Trump has used Twitter and the way uh, White House has been using Twitter, it obviously uh, that's what the judge has picked up on. That this is a legitimate public sphere where matters of government is being discussed, where announcements are being made, and the argument from many of the uh, people who have taken Trump to court is that we miss out on what the government is doing because we have been blocked. Mm. So therefore, it legitimately can be argued that Twitter on Trump's official handle is a public space. And that's what this argument is about. Um, Mary, it's interesting to reflect, I suppose, that you know the plaintiffs in this case had already sent letters requesting to be unblocked following precisely that, that logic. The White House had ignored them. We, we know about his, fat, his fat-headedness, but why would Trump engage on an issue as trivial as this when, meanwhile, dot, 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 the North Korea deal is stalling and all the rest of it? What, what, what is it that sort of constantly prompts him and his in, inner circle to, to pursue these, these campaigns? Well, I suppose that in a way you've sort of given it away that, it, that Trump is, it seems to be a sort of compulsive engager so that if mm. there's an argument out there to be had um, and it affects him, then he's jolly well going to um, get into it um, and take an active part. Um, but it, it, it is a wonderful story, this, because in a way it's, it, it's Trump being sort of got at in his own terms and his own uh, on his own terms and in his own language um, because he insisted on keeping a Twitter account beyond the campaign even though he was advised strongly not to in some ways I think he's he's set a precedent for 
other national leaders that it'll be very difficult in future for other national leaders not to have a Twitter account and use it to communicate. Um, but when the judge says, well, you know, this is this is a public forum and this is, as it were, official statements that are being put out, then you can also see the opposite argument that the problem is that Trump and the White House and the rest of the administration don't always actually work in sync. So there is a degree of, uh, of sort of personality that mm. goes into Trump's tweets that ne then are not acted on. So I think, you know, maybe maybe he could go back and appeal on the grounds that he's using it in <laughs> personal capacity rather than a public one. <laughs> um, now, I'm sure there are no cynics in this uh, studio, but is it possible, Somrath Batabyar, that the White House, Trump, actually doesn't mind this story as, as sort of troubling as it could be in the short term, it's a good diversion from some much more serious problems to it, Mueller and all the rest. There's big breaking news, of course, yesterday in that, in that sort of regard. Um, a diversion that he and his advisers will be probably fairly sanguine about, perhaps? So could we spread this rumour or story that this is actually <laughs> Trump's sponsored uh, legal well, I, I challenge? I mentioned foil hat conspiracy theories earlier. Yeah, we we know, can our own. Suddenly, will this show Midori House be accused of <laughs> peddling? Possibly not. Possibly not for the first time. But but is there something to that? You know, we we know about and politicians the world over have picked fights with media or particularly influential public voices. Uh, this is a different forum. Okay, now we understand it is public. The courts have ruled that. But it could be expedient for him to allow this to sort of take some of the oxygen that otherwise might fire something that could be more damaging to him personally. Well. <laughs> I mean, again, if you it's the larger scheme of things, perhaps I wouldn't agree with it because uh, this is this. Given that North Korea is happening, given the, all the other things which are going on, this wouldn't take so much space in the New York Times and the Washington Post. I don't think so. They, you know, maybe a shoulder on the front page, left hand side, but nothing more than that. So, no, I wouldn't agree with that. Uh, and Mary, what about the? If we look at it from the other point of view, and these people who have effectively been rewarded with extraordinary publicity and notoriety by essentially attacking him and then <laughs> having this robot. I mean, in a sense, and this is partly the problem, I suppose, with a platform like this. What you learn here is attack the president. It, you know, you will receive more notoriety. It, it, it pays to be as offensive as as the man himself. Yes, absolutely. And it probably suits Trump that way as well because it gives them both a forum um, to say how much they hate and distrust each other. Um, so, And it provides huge entertainment for the rest of us. Yeah, I don't know how edifying it is as part of the public discourse, but we'll return to that, no doubt. Uh, this is Midori House. Uh, alongside me, Tom Edwards, Mary Dijewski and Somnath Batabiar. Coming up next, why Russia isn't convinced by the reappearance of Yulia Skripal and we'll share our tips on how to navigate a potentially tense dinner. Stay tuned. Download the latest episode of Meet the Writers to join me, Georgina Godwin, as I talk to Peter Florence, the man responsible for one of the biggest and best literary events in the world, the Hay Festival Wales. That's Peter Florence on Meet the Writers, available as a podcast now.
You're with Midori House. I'm Tom Edwards. Still with me, Mary Dijewski and Somnath Batabial. The daughter of former Russian spy Sergei Skripal made her first appearance on camera yesterday since she and her father were poisoned. Yulia said her recovery had been slow and painful, but the timing of her statement had some people questioning the motive, as the Associated Press, among other media outlets, pointed out. The appearance seemed to be designed to address claims from Moscow that Britain has effectively kidnapped the Skripals and prevented Russian officials uh, from visiting them. Uh, Mary Dijewski, to you. Um, it sounds like a crazy notion, but I wonder, how, how is that likely to be seen from the, the Russian perspective? Is that something that does indeed have, have, have traction? I think it has a huge amount of traction, um, and I have a degree of personal sympathy for it as well, um, because I think that the, um, the silence from the British authorities um, was becoming quite deafening. Mm. And I think that um, I was certainly, I was at a press briefing with the Russian ambassador here in London at the end of last week, and he covered a, a lot of topics, but one of them was the Skripas, and he said that um, it was hard to uh, see any other interpretation than, you know, a Russian citizen. Um, in fact, they're both Russian citizens, but in this th- this case, um, Yulia had come from Moscow, um, that um, a Russian citizen had been kidnapped and the British authorities were refusing, unlawfully refusing consular access. Um, and this had been going on really pretty much since the beginning. And the British are not entitled to do that. Um, So it put them in quite a weak position. And I think they were in a weak position from another point of view as well, um, which was to do with the, um, first of all, the non-information that's come out over the last four, six weeks, and the confused signals that were sent out before that as to the nature of the poisoning, when, where it happened, where the poison was put, how it was administered. You know, Russia is always accused of sort of sowing confusion when it wants to divert attention. But it seemed to me that when the Russians accused the British of doing exactly the same, um, they weren't completely wrong. So I think that, yes, there was a very definite message to the Russians from um, putting Yulia Skripal out there, which was that um, she was recovering, um, she hadn't been harmed, and um, she was voluntarily um, saying that she didn't want to meet Russian representatives now. Um, I think there was also a message in a way to everybody else, um, which was... um, There was a poisoning, Um, it was a nerve agent, and they are recovering. What was interesting to me was that nowhere in that short broadcast were some of the major messages that the British had been putting out really since the very beginning, which was that Russia was responsible. Um, Russia was completely sort of wicked in its in, in, in its motivation and that um, the two Skripals would, as it were, were being targeted by the Russians and would want nothing whatever more to do with them. And Yulia actually contradicted that um, by saying, well, she didn't want to see Russian officials now. Um, but in the longer term, she wanted to go back to Russia. Now, that 
doesn't really support the um, the British view that the two of them were targets of Russian assassination attempts. And so I think that um, maybe at the same time as sending a message to the Russians um, on the diplomatic front, there was also a message out there that the British have actually, they have withdrawn a bit from some of their original very strongly worded positions. Uh, and that's an interesting point, isn't it, Sonia? Because there was a lot of discussion, I think we spoke with Mary, uh, at the time of the sort of ongoing investigation into what had happened about British mismanagement. It does appear nobody emerges with too much credit, but I guess... I don't know, I still find it rather difficult to find it that surprising that certainly Yulia Skripal would be maybe reluctant to receive uh, consular advice given what... I mean, there's, it's still ultimately the suggestion from both of them as well as the Brits that there was some involvement from, from Moscow. That could be, I mean, but as Mary just says, that you know the bellical statements which were coming out uh, from the British government, including the foreign minister who almost... who said it, that it was... Putin, who ordered the hit. You know, these statements have not been uh, validated. In fact, the Foreign Office had to delete a tweet which said that the substance Novichok originated in the USSR, and they had to delete that tweet. And now, that's really bad policy. You know, whoever, in this day and age, you don't delete mm -hmm. official tweets. It just puts you in a really bad space. Uh, <clears throat> recently, uh, what was very... Uh, Today Morning's uh, story that Boris Johnson has been... Uh, pranked. And again, there he puts out conversations like, we don't want a Cold War, but Putin should be under no illusions. They should, you know, this kind, it almost gets to be a bit silly how, uh, and even if they had a very strong case, that has been quite severely diluted by now. Mm. And European partners who were very proactive in the beginning have been quietly backing yes. off this mm. Russian sanctions mm. business. And the whole idea that um, the the nerve agent um, was sort of exclusive to Russia, exclusively developed and uh, and um, uh, disposed by the but by the Russians, um, that's actually progressively been discredited. It was discredited initially um, by the scientists at Porton Down in mm, the yeah. UK, who said. We don't know where it came from. It was discredited by the um, chemical weapons watchdog who said it's not our job to decide where it came from. And subsequently, we've had reports from the Czech Republic and from Germany of people saying in very official capacity um, that this stuff has been around for a long time. We've had access to it and we've shared it with our Western allies. So that another key plank of the, uh, of the British argument is really is not there anymore. And just very briefly, before we move on to our final item, if indeed Britain is seeking to hold the Skripals beyond, I don't know, even what they themselves might wish, what's in it for Britain? Is it, is it it's just a piece of politicking? It's a gesture to, towards Moscow? Is it an aggressive gesture? I mean, why, why would it be in British interest to do that, if that is indeed the case? This, is, this remains a complete mystery to me. Um, I simply cannot see any motivation, either on the Russian side or the British side, for what's happened. Um, and the only thing I can think of is that what we're watching at the moment is um, a step back from both sides um, and that what they're hoping is that by behaving a little more decorum um, that rather than have two people disappeared in a democratic rule of law country which doesn't do these things um, we'll actually be able to see some sort of you know, that they will get better and in the fullness of time they will decide where they want to go and it'll be a bit more above board. 
well, Mary mentioned decorum then. Perfectly teeing up our final item. I'm sure we've all attended our share of tense dinner parties. Sonath is grinning. I don't know why. What does he know about this? <laughs> Perhaps the hosts are busy bickering over undercooked chicken or that long-awaited case of wine, which turns out to be a dud. High-stakes diplomatic meeting organisers, though, can afford no such faux pas. Uh, in the latest edition of uh, Monocle's newspaper, The Spring Weekly, we feature a few uh, select tips on how to break the ice, bridge divides turn down the tensions and so on and so forth. Uh, Trump maybe doesn't have to contend with this with Kim, as now it seems the case. Uh, but others still might. Uh, Emmanuel Macron is on a trip to Moscow. There could be a few awkward moments. Uh, there are some slightly more obvious uh, advisories in here. Uh, it's not helpful when you threaten each other, uh, says Rachel Sussman, a, ra- a relationship expert and therapist <laughs> from New York. Uh, Probably obvious, but certainly Donald Trump could pay you to that. Um, Mary, do you have any secrets? What's the secret to, to navigating these kind of tense gatherings? Frankly, diplomatic or personal in character? Well, I mean, I've presided over a catastrophic dinner party in the United States um, <laughs> where I had basically guests sort of um, going at each other hammer and tongs over the uh, rights and wrongs of um, Russia policy that got extremely personal. Um, and we practically had people walking out, certainly leaving early. Um, so this was not a good idea um, and I've also been at a private dinner party in the UK which also, which got um, extremely tense and difficult um, and afterwards there was sort of apology by the hosts and this is nothing to do with the food or the drink or anything um, it was entirely due to um, the subjects under discussion and the sort of attitudes of the people who were there and I suppose what it taught me was look at the guest list very very carefully and consider <laughs> what potential there is for monumental conflict. Uh, Very, very wise words. Time is short, Somnatha. Anything to add to that? Well, my wife tries to coach me every time. Don't drink too much and keep your mouth shut. Uh, I, I, I fail. These are just general advisories. Uh, yes. One of the biggest problems, uh, uh, one of the ways to do this is to induce copious amounts of wine in the conversation, but Trump doesn't drink. Uh, so, you know, uh, between him and Kim, if the dinner had taken place, God knows what would have happened. He's just now saying, thank God I'm not going to use my big weapons on you, but if I did, that's, you know, so I don't think that dinner would have gone well. So good, it's off. There we go. See, we have an air of finality on which to close. And that brings us to the end of today's uh, programme. My thanks to Mary Dijewski, to Somnath Batabiel, and thanks to the team behind the glass, our producer Ben Rylan, a research team of Daphne Carnizes and Helena Jurit, and our studio manager, Christy Evans. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 here in London, but for the Thursday edition. And me, Tom Edwards, it's goodbye.